Diversify. My name is Holly. And I'm Kate. And uh, we are on Zoom for this one because we just spent 45 minutes trying to figure out how to work clean feed, thus proving that women and technology <laughs> work very well. The thing well. we're trying to not add to has happened. <laughs> it doesn't help that you've just had your COVID vaccine and are unable to communicate or say words properly. Well, I'm almost certain that the reason it didn't work was because of my 5G vibes. Um, so that's a funny story, Kate. Would you like to hear it? I would. So I am not over 60, nor am I in any of the endangered groups. But I did teach a drum lesson yesterday, about half an hour walk away. And on my way back, I was walking past Forest Gate on the phone to my mum. And a man was like, hey, hey, hey. And I was like, sorry, I'm on the phone. He was like, no, a vaccine. And I was like, what? So I said, mom, I'll call you back. And I was like, what's going on? And Kate's laughing. This is just, it sounds so delirious, but yeah, go on. I was a bit scared that I was gonna be kidnapped. So I was like, what? And he was like, we've got spare vaccines. Would you like one? And I was like, this does not look like a vaccine center. So he took me in and I was like, uh, I can't see a single NHS anything. And then he leads me through and it's literally a mosque. Like there are literally men praying the other side of the rope. And I'm like, where is the vaccine center? And then he led me into another room and it turns out that it was a pop-up vaccine center only vaccinating yesterday and today. Because I live in Newham and live with somebody who's high risk, they let me do it there and then. And I got vaccinated with AstraZeneca last night at about quarter to six. I mean, that's quite a story. It's like you went through the labyrinth and came out vaccinated. Yeah, now I'm safer. Speaking of, <laughs> I've got one, guys. Speaking of injecting life into the film and television industries. <laughs> God. I'm quite proud of that one. Illustrious guest, please introduce yourself. <laughs> That's the best intro ever. I'm Meriel, Meriel Beale, and I'm a TV producer. Thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have some very exciting endeavours? Unseen on screen and cheer up, love. Yeah, oh, thank you for sharing the love. Unseen on screen, can you tell us a little bit about what that's about and how you came to setting it up? Yeah, Unseen on screen is an anti-bullying campaign and its main purpose was to raise awareness of how bad bullying and harassment is in the TV and film industry and to raise awareness and also to make people feel empowered that they could speak up and that they could share their stories. So it was an anonymous campaign that went out in National Anti-Bullying Week and the reaction was huge. It got reported on all over the place. The reason it started in the first place was because I personally had a really bad experience and I've been producing for years and years. And I thought, if this can happen to me, with all my experience and at my age and, you know, knowing all the people I do in the industry, it can happen to absolutely anybody. So I thought, I really don't want it to happen to anybody else. What can I do? And the first thing that I did was just to sort of open up about it on social media and say, does this resonate with anybody else? 
at which point I got inundated with stories. I wasn't expecting it, actually. Just at that point, I thought I might get one or two people going, yeah, it's bad. But I was absolutely inundated with people wanting to share very specific stories. I felt like I needed to honour them and I needed to do something with them. I thought people have told me this for a reason. And obviously, with their permission, I need to get them out there anonymously. But to kind of give them something that they feel like they didn't go through that horrendous experience for nothing. So yeah, that's what it all started from. I went to Bektu. Bektu were the ones that helped me set it all up and were fantastic with the, you know, the website and collating the stories. So, so Bektu is the union for everyone kind of working behind the scenes in the industry. Yes, and the exciting thing is that until really recently, until last year, there wasn't a union for unscripted, which is what I work in. There was a union for drama and all the scripted elements and for crew but there was nothing for unscripted people like you know, producers and people behind the cameras. So that's new and really, really helpful. For people who don't know what unscripted TV is, can you give us an example of the sorts of shows that you've worked on in the past? I mean, I say unscripted, there's always a script, but entertainment shows, worked on things like X Factor, worked on a show with a uh, game show with Joe Lysett, BBC One, The Time It Takes, Big Painting Challenge, BBC One, National TV Awards, where it's got more talent, stuff like that. Do you think that the problem of bullying is something that's specific to the TV industry and a culture that's sort of developed over time? I guess I'm kind of asking, have you gotten any closer to figuring out why it's a part of the culture? Yeah, I think the freelance nature of our business has a lot to answer for. And the fact that we are all on short-term contracts. So if you're on an eight-week contract for something and you're having a terrible time, First of all, you say to yourself, I've only got to get through this short amount of time. And secondly, you don't have any kind of exit interview with your boss. There's never any feedback. Everything is on your reputation. You think to yourself, I want to be employed again in the industry. I don't want people to think I'm a troublemaker. It's their word against mine. They've got all the power and all the money, and I'm just a gun for hire. And I think that's what most people go through in their minds when they're presented with a situation where they're feeling bullied or harassed or gaslighted. Most people haven't complained, but I think that's beginning to change. I know that in our community, like, reputation really is everything. But I hadn't necessarily thought about the fact that the freelance nature of it really feeds into that. There's mm. obviously bullying in all aspects of any profession, but I hadn't really thought about the fact that you really don't have the same kind of recourse to even go through like HR and stuff everything's way more drawn out because there isn't such a regulated ladder to go up when you said that it made me think of Michaela Cole's talk in Edinburgh a few years ago where she talked about how there was one white actor who'd said they wanted their own trailer and then there were people of color who all ended up in one trailer and Michaela Cole stormed into the production office and was like what the hell it turned out that they just didn't want to lose their job so they hadn't complained about it and this other actress said she wanted her own trailer when I first started acting how desperate I was not to um, not to complain about anything even when the conditions especially when you're doing low-paid theatre usually really quite rubbish and just wanting to come across as like chilled out easygoing easy to work with never complain about anything I think in the acting industry it's more about simply being asked to do stuff that no other profession would consider appropriate to ask somebody to do yeah sometimes that's literally like borderline traumatized people for the sake of quote-unquote art I think though it is really interesting that in my experience a lot of the more low-paid stuff actually has the worst conditions oh gosh um, yeah 
It's the same with, I've just started a corporate startup in America of all places, and people are getting paid good wages to write the scripts and to film it and all that. And you have to do less in that than some corporate things where you're getting paid half of that, if not a quarter of that, to do everything. A lot of the time, the people who are paying less have less idea about what they want, less idea about what it takes to make it happen. And that's when you start getting really shortchanged, in my experience of script writing at least, and editing, which I guess is a similar thing. You know, and, and we can delve into why it happens, but I think there's still a perception that it happens because the person being bullied is somehow weaker, which is not true. There's obviously something about power in it, definitely, but there's loads of other reasons why it could be happening. It's not ever the person who's being bullied's fault. And I think that's really important. And often the first thing somebody thinks when they're being bullied is, how can I change my behaviour? And that's what I did. I thought, oh, just laugh it off. So I tried to laugh it off. And then I thought, stand up to it. So I tried to stand up to it. And it just, not whatever I tried to do didn't actually make any difference. What were the experiences that you spoke up about publicly? It was a company where I wasn't the only person it was happening to, but I was the most senior person it was happening to. And I was getting the brunt of it. I felt very protective for my team. And in fact, I had two people who hadn't worked in TV before on my team. And at one point I took them to one side and I said, can we have a word? And they looked absolutely terrified. And I said, I'm not going to tell you off. I just wanted to say this is not normal. And they went, thank God you said that. We just thought this was what TV was like. I was like, no. There was sort of no way of dealing with it. HR worked for the person that was the problem, so they didn't care. The broadcaster were really sympathetic, but ultimately nothing really was done. If I ever said anything to anybody, they all went, oh yeah, we know. We know about that place. We know about that person. It was an open secret. And I thought, if I don't do something, who is? I think so many people are like, I don't know what I can do. I don't want to put my head above. I think that's what happens like higher up as well. Why people like in HR and stuff don't do anything. Everybody's scared that they'll be the next one. Just to put it in context, it, this all happened at the time that a survey came out that the film and TV charity did where they said that most people have been bullied, most people have experienced it or witnessed it, and a really, really high number of people had thought about taking their own lives because of work, or they'd had suicidal thoughts, or they'd had depression. And this survey came out, and I was absolutely blown away by it. I was, at that time, I was in the middle of it all myself. So that, I think that, that was quite a powerful force as well, like reading that while I was going through it and just thinking, no, time for change. You said everyone feels like they've experienced bullying at some point. I know I have, even as an adult. Mm. And people find it difficult to speak up about bullying. But I think sometimes we don't realise it's happening. What have you learnt from speaking to people who have said they felt gaslighted in these experiences? Yes, I think it's, it's really interesting that, that um, one of the things that's come from Unseen on screen is people have looked back on previous experiences and said, oh my God, I thought that was normal. I thought that was acceptable. And now I realise it wasn't. So there have been some historical things that people have been talking to me about, as well as more recent things. And it's ongoing, even though that campaign, you know, went out in, in uh, National Bullying Week. It hasn't stopped behind the scenes. I'm still getting stories in. Gaslighting is an interesting one. I felt like definitely I was gaslighted. And, uh, or do we say gaslit? Yeah. Um, <laughs> hmm. And I remember once saying out loud in the office, I think that I'm going mad. And you just don't know, you know, things are changed at the last minute. Nobody tells you. Things are hidden from you. It's very odd. And that's real power play. 
But I think the thing to remember about bullying is quite often what happens if, if you do speak up, the perpetrator will say, well, I didn't mean to upset you. And it's really important to remember that it is not the intention that's important, it's the impact. So they can say that and they will say that, no doubt, but it's actually the impact that's really important. And I think hopefully we've got to a point now where you can have HR or somebody independent who's there who can try and sort of mediate and say this person has been really distraught by what's been going on. You've really affected them. We need to address that. I think it's really interesting what you say about the intention doesn't necessarily matter. Obviously, it's a grey area, I think, sometimes, and that's why we shouldn't automatically just cancel everybody immediately and give people a chance. But I do think like when we're trying to talk to people about institutional racism or mm. institutional sexism, that doesn't mean that you're going around calling people the N-word or like punching non-white people or sexually abusing women and deliberately firing them and stuff. But it might mean that you have some like biased issues and that's harmful as well. We always talk about intent, but actually so much of that is a very small thing in the back of your head that you're not even realising. It feels yeah. kind of perfect because they've just released a thing like now about how Britain isn't institutionally racist. And then all the black people and the brown people have said, well, I feel gaslighted by that report because exactly. their lived experiences are not reflected in that report. But yeah, I think I don't mean to come across as unforgiving and on some kind of witch hunt. I'm not in any way. In fact, a lot of the time I'm not actually doing anything. People are just coming to me. I'm not inviting the stories particularly. I think people see me as a freelancer who's raised their head above the parapet and so they can trust me, so they tell me their stories. It's all about communication. Yes, you can hopefully say to somebody what you said or what you did hurt me for these reasons and hopefully that will change their approach, their words, their manner, but if it doesn't work, then that's something else. But I think that in TV, it's not full of like power-crazed bullies that go to work in TV, but it's full of people who are stretched to the limit with their budgets, with their schedules, their energy, they're passionate people, they're driven. And it's really important to know the difference between people who might speak to you in a certain way because they are trying to get a job done and they don't agree with you about something because they're passionate and stepping over the line and bullying and harassment. I think most people can see that that line and see where the, where it comes in. A lot of the time, if someone is perhaps a little bit manipulative, a little bit of a power play, a little bit of a bully, they will put you into a position where you don't even realise it's happening to you. And, and that's where the gaslighting comes from. But I think the other thing that happens, as you say, is, is if you do manage to get to a place where you can confront people, it's almost like they've got an answer prepared for that. And you go and you're like, I'm going to say this to you and I'm going to say this and it's all going to get fixed. And I'm going to tell you that you're horrible and need to change your life. And then you get there and you're like a rabbit in the headlights. And suddenly all of the feelings that made it hard for you to do that in the first place just come back to the surface and you can't really stand up yourself. And mm -hmm. I think the only way that those situations can get fixed is if there are onlookers who are not scared to then step in and call it like they see it. Because a lot of the time, everyone is too scared to speak up for yeah. fear of damaging their own professional or personal reputation. It makes me think of the Ellen DeGeneres thing that's that's come up recently. I don't know about the Ellen DeGeneres thing. Like, I've loved Ellen for <laughs> a decade. You want her to be good. She did a good monologue about it, but I, don't, I just, it was one of those things where I was like, I don't know how you didn't know about it. A lot of people who used to work on your show have been saying this for a few years. 
So I think the whole thing's just very, very messy. It's difficult, isn't it? Because if nobody is speaking up at that point, how do you know? But at the same time, you must be a bit aware of your own behaviour and of how you run your team. And there's so much of it still going on. (laughs) It also makes me think of the pranks that George Clooney and Brad Pitt used to play on each other. I think it was Brad Pitt turned up on set one day and George Clooney had told the whole crew and the whole cast and everything that they weren't allowed to look at him. They had to address him as Mr. Pitt, that he liked, you know, a bucket of muffins delivered to his door every morning and you had to bow and scrape and everything. After a while he was going, why is everyone... So yeah, you, you, you're aware of it, even if you're not doing anything. But then, again, it goes back to the whole thing about there's a line, isn't there? There's a strong, passionate leader or they're stepping over the line and, and it's bullying. Historically, I think we've, we've actually really put some of these quote unquote strong leaders on a pedestal. We've almost like made these people who were dicks, made them seem like heroes. It's the whole love the art, hate the artist kind of thing. And there are certain lines everybody has, like nobody talks about lost profits anymore. Like that was a line that everyone was like, okay, but there are other lines. I think we've just kind of historically, particularly in the arts, particularly with things like method acting and stuff, We've really like not only excused it, but almost made it seem like their grossness is the thing that makes them so great. Yeah, you're right. I completely agree. It's sort of almost been rebranded as a good thing. So certainly in TV, there's phrases that are used, you know, unique personality. And you know that if if you're told you're working with somebody that's a unique personality, that's code for that's going to be tricky. That's used quite a lot. Well, let's talk about the positives that are happening out of this. What are your plans moving forward? What are you excited about? I can't talk about this without mentioning the work that Coalition for Change are doing. And Adil Amini has been doing great work. And he has managed to get together all the broadcasters to sit down and have conversations about all these issues, including bullying. Also about training, because nobody ever gets trained when you're a freelancer. You just kind of like waft along for years <laughs> doing your best. And that is one of the other reasons that people bully, because they don't know what they're doing. So they're doing great work. So those guys are sitting down and talking these things through. And they're coming up with a code of conduct that all broadcasters are going to adhere to. I really wanted to have, in the way that you have a first aid or on set or health and safety person on set, I would love to see a mental health first aider or an independent person who's part of the production process and can just be there. If anybody has an issue that they want to discuss, they can mediate or whatever. That's a budget thing, obviously, because who's paying for that? If the broadcaster pays for that, does that mean the person feels they work for the broadcaster? There's lots of things to think about. But Beck2 and Channel 4 recently got together to discuss having a person on every production assigned to being the anti-bullying person so that's quite an interesting suggestion see where that goes would that be like being an equity rep so you're not technically with the production company you're just like somebody that's voted on or would that be somebody from beck to comes in and is i'm the person that you go to i think they just mean somebody that's already on the production i still think it's better to have an independent person because we don't know who those persons alliances are with or where their loyalties lie so sad that we have to worry about that sort of thing at this point isn't it the fact that we're worrying that there might be someone who's going to align themselves with a certain group of people on set and therefore not be a good rep it makes me very sad it's sad that like the fallibility of humans is potentially gonna cause problems even with the people who are trying to do the good thing Yeah. yeah i don't think anyone really thinks they're the villain been writing about that a lot actually lately is all i think of but yeah 
everyone wants to justify their own choices and in someone's version of events they have justified their own choices we just have to look for where there's harm being done and and deal with that look it is looking positive people are aware people are talking and people want to change so it's a difficult time at the moment in that change is difficult isn't it and lots of people are scared of it and it's kind of churning up loads of stuff but we are getting somewhere we're moving and we're making progress let's move on to cheer up love because you have yet another (laughs) activist venture which is cheer up love which was has been going for longer than unseen on screen is that right that's been sort of forming in my head well gosh hang on where are we so in 2019 i guess i wanted to provide a community for freelancers it started off as being particularly for women in comedy but it's kind of broadened really I felt like, where can we go when we are worried or concerned about things that are happening at work? Or where can we go when we just feel lonely at work if we're a freelancer? The first issue we addressed was rejection, dealing with rejection. And it was a live event just before lockdown, the first lockdown. ITV held it for me. Tiff Stevenson was doing the interviewing. And I got Mira Sayal, brilliant comedy director called Barbara Wiltshire, who's done things like Inside Number Nine, TV's Ben Shepherd. Charlie George, who's up and coming comedian. And I had them all on the panel discussing dealing with rejection. And it was quite an eye opener because, for instance, Mira, national treasure, bowled in and went, well, you've got me on a good day. You've just been rejected for something else. And I don't have any work at the moment. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't even understand that. <laughs> it really meant a lot that this person who we all consider to be wildly successful and constantly in demand is standing there saying, no, nope, got nothing, nothing on the horizon, just been rejected. It's mad, isn't it, how that happens? No matter how high you get, you still have trouble, particularly when you're not a straight white man. Some of these people have been in the biggest film and TV and they're still finding it hard to get work. You just don't know, do you? Just don't know. Which goes back to mental health, doesn't it? Because you don't know what someone's going through. And even if if they say they're fine, they might not be fine. But yeah, so I did, I did that one. That was a live event. I can remember thinking, God, the signs are on the horizon that something bad's coming. But then we went into lockdown, so I then moved it onto Zoom did one with Davina McCall and the Reverend Richard Coles and Darren Harriet about dealing with self-isolation. And that was right at the start when we were all quite scared and we didn't know what was going on. And then I did another one further down the line, which Dame Baptiste hosted, all about racism. Racism in comedy and TV, which was really interesting. When you look back at those three events, what would you say were the things that you learned from it that you still sort of think about today? The exhaustion that people of colour have that people who are considered other have with dealing every single day and the microaggressions that they deal with every single day that I think as a white straight person you don't see or consider and that when they're allowed a space to talk about it it's uh, a real eye-opener. Part of me was like was said today you know do you even want to talk about this do you even want to host this but he did he really did because I was aware that with Black Lives Matter it was suddenly the hot topic I had lots of conversations with people. I said, I don't want to be just another person seeing this movement and thinking, let's, hey, let's talk about it for two months. But at the same time, I don't want to have a platform and not try and be helpful or try and use it. But in the end, I thought it's nothing to do with me. He leads it. He does the talking. There's such a like a catch-22 when it comes to like discussions and debates about oppressions. Because like you said, being the white person who asks the black person to give their time to talk about it and their emotional energy. But then on the other side of that, you have these all male, all white diversity panels. And you're thinking, how do you get people talking without 
it either being tokenistic or completely the antithesis of what you're trying to do. I think it's really great that you've been trying to navigate that and that you've got people like Dame who are like, you know what? No, I want to talk about this because there will always be people who want to talk about this. I'm gay and I am one of those people who I want to engage in those panels. Other people, absolutely not. I guess it's about just respecting everybody's personal boundaries, I suppose. I want to be an ally and I want to be able to ask questions and be curious and allow people their space to speak. And it is, it's difficult sometimes navigating those waters, but you're navigating those waters in a, in a spirit of goodwill and good humour. And, and if you say the wrong thing, somebody will tell you and that you can say, Right. I mean, for instance, the other day, I've got, I've got a disabled friend and I said the phrase people with disabilities. She said, no, we don't like that. We say disabled people. And I was like, oh, sorry. OK. She went, it's all right. You know, that's it. Moved on. I've learned. That's what we talked about in a previous episode is how what causes this sort of divide is the opposite of that reaction. And it's so hard to navigate that because you end up in a situation where one person doesn't want to have to educate anyone around them and it upsets them. But you're never going to learn if someone doesn't take the patience and the time to then correct you. That's the argument that they don't always have the energy or the time or we, we don't always have it in us to do that. And it's not our responsibility to do that. Yes. Round and round we go. Yeah. It's not people's jobs to be teaching other people about their lived experiences and their lives. But at the same time, we're all human beings and we all need to communicate and hopefully share. I think there's also this like innate human trait to get like defensive about stuff. And I, I don't know how we get over that because I don't know if you saw the videos recently of like Sharon Osbourne on the talk mm. screaming at a black woman. If I was watching it in a discussion about race, I would think that it was fake. And I would think it was too on the nose because mm -hmm. that's like every single bit of white fragility. The problem is you just can't deal with that. If somebody's doing that, mm. you, there's nothing you can do. And I think that's where it gets really difficult. Like I've had some conversations where I've been like, you know what? Here's a great article. I've left it. I've muted the conversation. Goodbye. I know they're not going to read the article, but at the end of the day, they clearly don't want to learn. And that's when we've just got to kind of weigh up whether it's worth our emotional energy. That leads us actually to quite a good segue, I think, of a podcast that is famous amongst its two followers for having really awful segues. <laughs> but the, the idea that sometimes we don't have the energy and sometimes we have to turn it off. Would you consider yourself to be an activist or an accidental activist? Or... <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever thought, oh, I'm an activist. <laughs> I guess I am doing things that are in that world. I've always felt, I mean, when I was younger, I was huge on animal rights. And then I've always been a feminist and been fighting for equality and for women to be treated less as objects. And that hasn't changed yeah, and now I've been standing up to bullying, which was terrifying, not going to lie, but feels good, ultimately. I am a bit, this thing terrifies me, but I'll give it a go. That's the best. I'm not sure if that means I'm an activist, but that's <laughs> what I am. <laughs> the thing that you do is you do actions. If you think of like an activist is like actions, and you've been talking to Beck too about how to actively make it better. There's an element of being an activist, which is, you know, standing up in front of a protest and, and really putting your body on the line in that way. And then there's another side of it that's like put your reputation on the line by making things happen. And that I think in that respect, you absolutely are an activist because you are actioning things. 
<laughs> and I think there are plenty of really good activists who don't action things. And that's why we need, we sort of need both. We need somebody to mm. be up there doing a speech and whatever. The Dane Baptists being willing to do that. And then you platforming Dane Baptiste to do it. You know, it's, it's action. And that's what activist is. Good on you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. We ask everyone this question. And it's just because... It's essentially what we've just been talking about is that we all learn at our own pace. We all need to feel safe owning up to our mistakes and we need to feel safe allowing ourselves to be in those spaces where we might feel uncomfortable. And in that process, we're probably going to make mistakes. So we like to ask people if they have stuck their foot in it at any point recently. I've got a silly one. Yeah, great. There's a street near us which is closed off so kids can play and we were out there and my husband was talking to somebody and I didn't recognise them. And then he went, Mariel, it's, let's call him Simon, it's Simon. And I was absolutely none the wiser, but went over and this guy was like, oh my God, hello, like this. And I was like, hi, hi. And I was being friendly, but I was still like, I don't know who you are. And then it took me until about halfway through the conversation, I realised I'd been to school with him. I'd been really good friends with him. But obviously it was quite a long time ago and I just hadn't, placed him so then I was in this dilemma of do I just stop and go oh my god I've just realized it's you or do I just gradually ramp up my enthusiasm for the conversation <laughs> to try to match what I think I should have been naturally at the start so that's what I went for so I just kind of ramped up the sort of enthusiasm and was kind of like oh, by the end which is a bit odd probably for him <laughs> those situations you have one of two choices don't you you either go with it or you're honest I once went yeah. to a club years ago it was a gay night called pop stars it was so good in was that in Brighton no it was in Hobart but they I think it used to they do like revenge well yeah it started off as like the Friday night at this one club and then when that club closed down it would dot around but this club it was amazing and this guy came up to me and was like oh my god how are you I have never seen him before in my <laughs> entire life like not one of those that I'm like you look familiar like I have never seen you before and I just went with it and the whole night I was acting like I was his best friend he'd brought this guy on a date to pop stars and he was just like oh my god I've said this I've heard so much about you and so I I was like um so how's uh, your dating life? And the guy was like, yeah, me and blah, blah, broke up. And I was like, oh no, you were so good together. And we had this whole conversation about how him and his ex had been great together. Best friends all night, never seen him again. I, I still don't know who he thought I was, but he definitely came out of that night thinking that we'd had a great one when I was in my first year of drama school and had essentially had my head in the curb from drinking too much and someone came up to me and said Kate are you okay Ooh. and I was like yeah yeah I'm fine and they were like uh, are they your friends inside the shop I was like yeah they're coming out in a minute and he said uh you know who I am don't you I said yes of course I know who you are couldn't see because my hair was in my face I had no idea who it was and they said uh well I'll see you soon okay well I mean hopefully never again but uh I'll, I'll see you really soon no idea who it was <laughs> I still to this day if you were that person please email rteamq at gmail.com and let me know because it haunts me and one time I was interviewing people doing like box pops 
for a gig before I went to London I used to work as a music journalist in Brighton and usually just used to write comedic reviews and not really talk about the music and complain about the toilets but I was doing a let's call DJ Sam let's call him DJ Sam doing a DJ Sam gig and uh, I walked outside into the smoking area and I tried to get some box pops from all the people around. And I asked this guy, I was like, what did you think of the gig? He was like, oh, I thought DJ Sam was amazing. I was like, great. What about the rest of the people who are up tonight? He was like, mm, I only really like DJ Sam. And I was like, that's great. He was like, yeah, he was really, really good. And I was like, oh, okay. And he kept going on about how good DJ Sam was. And then he walked off because I clearly wasn't getting it. And the man next to me was like, you just made a fool out of my hero. That was DJ Sam. <laughs> But you can't see what they look like in the dark. I, lo I love a mistaken identity. I had one where I was at the supermarket with my then boyfriend, now husband, and uh, this woman just went, oh my God, how are you? And I was like, oh, fine. But didn't know who she was. She went, how's university? And I went, uh, yeah, great, great. And she went, it's a history of art you're doing, isn't it? I was like, yes, yeah. I was going to Richard, introduce yourself so I know who she is. And he introduced himself didn't mean anything to me she went how's your mum and I went yeah yeah fine yeah then she went um do you want a lift back and I went oh to be out of your way she went don't be silly it's the same road as your mum's and I was like okay and we got we literally were carrying her laden with shopping helping her carry her bags to her car and as we got there it's so ingrained into me from a young age don't get in a stranger's car that I couldn't help it I just went I'm really sorry I don't know who you are <laughs> and she went Sophie and I went, no. And she literally grabbed all the shopping off me. <laughs> oh, my God. But you and her Sophie car. were doing history of art together. I mean, yeah, obviously. She went off. I thought, And I thought you could have given us a lift. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, we're not strangers anymore. I know all about you. <laughs> Jesus. I well, believe you were doing the same degree as Sophie, though. All Sophies do history of art. <laughs> that is true. That is a widely known fact. We have one more, well, we've got two more questions. This is, Holly, this is the one. So we're on Zoom, so we can't really say at the same time. So why don't we say one word at a time? We realised in the first season that it's a really good way of psychoanalyzing people. I have a feeling what's going to happen here, but I'll, I'll keep my mouth shut until the end. Are you ready? Terrifies. It is a horrifying question. And the question is, what's your favourite Disney movie? Moana. <laughs> great answer good shout I think that might be my new favorite it's amazing Lin-Manuel yeah. why why is it the songs is it the story is it the funnies why is it Moana female hero goes on an adventure souls everything with good songs the thing that's great about Moana as well is spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it the ending where the big violent volcano villain is actually mother earth all along and yeah. the forgiveness of it and the actually the earth just sort of wanted to be able to be respected and actually it's not too late the like implications of that with climate change like it's not too late we can do this really hit me when i watched it a couple of months ago with my girlfriend it was the first time she'd watched it she's a burlesque performer and she does a lot of climate change work and it really hit her and was like huh that makes a lot of sense. That's a more positive way of showing what humans have done to the world. But actually, the world doesn't want to destroy us. I really love that about Moana. I completely forgot about that part. It's um, hopeful and beautiful 
as well as having good songs so yeah it's Hamilton for kids <laughs> can we invite more sunshine into the end of this podcast so that's the question have you got like a a nice little thing that you think is either changing for good in the industry or in the world I've got twins they've created this and it says our jar of happy things to do so I could have a little look see what's in there how old are your twins they've just turned nine so I'm just rummaging around I don't know if you can see but it says dancing in your underwear with a picture uh-huh of someone really going for it really go for it in their pants so that's amazing what's, what's your favorite dancing like no one's watching song recently i've been listening to i've got the music in me a lot if i'm going somewhere that i'm a bit nervous about i stick that on and i stomp around and it's got like words like if i've got a problem i go around it if i've got words in my head i just say them that is not like me i think about everything before i say it but i love listening to somebody that's not like me just being really powerful and passionate and getting it all out there. It's so funny that you say it's not like you because from an outsider's perspective, and I think this is really interesting because I'm sure we all see ourselves differently to the way other people see us, but you kind of do seem like that sort of person that you've got a problem, you fix it. If you have something you need to say, you say it. And it's good that we think about what we're going to say before we say it, but that's totally you as far as I'm concerned from what I've seen, so... Oh, it's really because nice. of the song, isn't it? You listen to the song and you were like, I'm a new Mariel. Yeah. <laughs> I've got the music in me, yeah. I know exactly what mine is. You can't stop the beat from oh, uh, Hairspray. Hairspray. I'm a big musical theatre geek and I'm somebody who's like musical theatre changing the world kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a perfect example of a musical with a message, but actually is just really joyful. And they've changed the lyrics now. The black mum, she has, because tomorrow is a brand new day, and it don't know white from black. They've changed it now to tomorrow is a brand new day, and it sees both white and black. Love it. Nice. And I was just like, yes! (laughs) Okay, so I think I know what my answer is. I think it's ABBA. And the reason why is when I was a bit younger and I said things like, I don't like musical theatre, I just like Les Mis and Oliver and also all the old movies that Julie Andrews and Judy Garland and Marilyn Monroe in. I like all of those, but I don't like musical theatre. And something happened in my early 20s where someone just put on ABBA and the mood changed like that. And we were all dancing around and everyone, you know, it was before ABBA became a little bit more mainstream again, because obviously they used to be very mainstream and then they were not cool. Have you you followed Eurovision over the years? (laughs) ABBA taught me that it's okay to not be cool. It's okay to not be cool because ABBA makes people happy and that's the most important thing. And that was when I realised that actually I do like musical theatre and I should just get over it. And I like a lot of musicals. (laughs) And then you listened to chess and you were like, I'm so depressed. Apart from that. I love chess. I love chess, but it is so depressing. I had a bit of a debate, shall we say, with my boyfriend. He was going, well, I don't like musical theatre. It just doesn't do it for me. And I was like, well, what musicals have you seen? He's going, Cats, 
Starlight Express. Uh, and he goes, but I like Book of Mormon. The guys from South Park made Book of Mormon. But also, <laughs> it Book makes of... it okay to like it. The thing about Book of Mormon it is, it's not a piss take of musicals. It's an, it's an homage. Yes. It's an absolutely structured, like a golden age musical. Every single song on it is a love letter to another famous musical. It is structured so well. It is so legitly like wholesome it's the same with avenue q like it was the same a lot of them were their same team but they are beautifully structured musicals sorry just just yeah <laughs> like wicked's the reason i'm an actor so i'm like oh wow you yeah just haven't found your musical yet if you say, and they always say don't they they're like oh i just didn't like starlight express and cats and it's like well i don't like starlight express and cats but yeah but also my argument is that inside of me is is not a huge amount of joy and I need to find it externally. <laughs> it's still my street. dream that, you know, just spontaneously the streets will burst into song and perfectly choreographed dance. That's just great. It Love happen. it whenever that happens. Yeah. It's the dream. It is the dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a bit of sunshine. The bit of sunshine is embrace musical theatre. <laughs> <laughs> And we just lost our two followers. I don't care. I'd rather have no followers and get to <laughs> plugs. P L U G S. It's like pugs with an L. Cheer up, love org is me on Twitter and Instagram. You can also follow me on Twitter, Mariel Beal. What about you, Kate? Kate Lois Elliot. Two L's, two T's. All devices. We're on Twitter at diversify pod and instagram at diversify podcast if you're listening to this podcast you've probably found us <laughs> on <laughs> itunes or spotify or libsyn but tell your friends if you are listening to this podcast please don't forget to rate and subscribe because that helps people find us including racist uncle michael oh my god so <laughs> that. just to let you know Racist Uncle Michael, basically, it comes from a podcast called Yo, Is This Racist? where this guy, Andrew T, a comedy writer, talks about his racist Uncle Michael. Racist Uncle Michael died. Oh, God. <laughs> and he had to... I was listening to it for the first time in months and, and Andrew was like, I need to address the fact that racist Uncle Michael died. And I was like, well, we can't use that in the podcast anymore. Okay, anyway, well. if you liked it, give us five stars. If you didn't like it, this has been the Lawrence Fox Radio <laughs> That's the sort of question that you should probably send to someone in advance so they can think about their answers. <laughs>